Welcome to the Vegan Dharma Podcast. I am Laura Nadia, the Vegan Dharma Coach. You're about to hear from an amazing human, a story of how they embody their soul's purpose. Open your mind, your heart, and your soul to receive this message today. First, let's take three deep breaths in through the nose and out through the mouth. Breathe in through the nose, out through the mouth. Inhale, exhale, inhale, letting your belly get nice and big with air, and gently release. Now we're grounded and we're ready to invite our guest. Enjoy. All right, my guest today on the Vegan Dharma podcast is Serena Farb, aka The Born Vegan. She's been vegan since birth. She's out there in Kansas doing her thing as a biochemistry and environmental science educator, a vegan activist, speaker, YouTube creator, co-founder and co-host of the Climate Diet Summit, the TV host, and the podcast host of the podcast Science is Gray, which takes a critical look at the intersection of science, ethics, and public policy. So welcome, Serena, to the Vegan Dharma Pod. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I'm so excited for this. So what would you describe as your dharma? I consider my dharma to be making the world a better place for all beings in the, in the simplest way I can put it. And that comes out in different ways at different times. But I feel like that is the root of what I try to do. Beautiful. And what was it like growing up vegan since birth? I know a lot of us, we made that decision later in life because we didn't have a choice until we came upon information later on in life. So what was it like growing up as a kid and being vegan? I mean, it's been an amazing experience. It of course has its ups and its downs as anything does. And for the most part, I'm incredibly grateful to have grown up knowing that I'm not intentionally contributing to the harm and killing of other beings. It can be hard to, especially as a child, grow up thinking, seeing an injustice that all of your friends and peers and the world around you are still actively participating in. And, you know, people ask me, like, what's the hardest part about growing up vegan? Did I feel deprived? Was I, you know, left out? Like all these things. And it's none of that. The hardest part is trying to wrap my head around the fact that other good, caring people that I love are supporting something that is so obviously harmful. And I think that's something that a lot of vegans as adults grapple with, but certainly as a child, it was a little confusing sometimes. I love animals and I don't want to eat them. And and I really believed, you know, in my innocent child mind that if only my friends knew, like I just thought they didn't know, they must not realize that they're hurting animals. So if I told them, if I showed the truth to them, then they too would also stop eating animals. And of course, it's not that simple. And that's uh, a rude awakening as a kid. Otherwise, very wonderful experience. Yeah, thank you for that. What age can you remember where these conversations first started to come up? Did your parents tell you when you were really young what meat really is? And how did that come up in your life? Absolutely. And that's something that our family did different from other people I know who were also raised vegan. We talked about it from day one, like as long as I can remember, 
both my sister and I were breastfed and I was the older one. And so, you know, when I was like five, six years old and my little sister was breastfeeding, my mother would say things like, oh, what kind of milk do you want? Oh, you want mama's milk. Do we drink uh, cow's milk? No. Do we drink cat's milk? No. Cat's milk is for baby cats. Elephant milk is for baby elephants. So just kind of in very simple logic that makes sense to a kid, you know, we don't steal another individual's milk that's meant for their babies. We love animals. We don't eat them. So we were constantly talking about that in little ways. Not like I never watched actually graphic footage until I was in my teens. So I never even had to see it. It was mostly just, we talked about the basics of other animals love their babies and want to live just like we do. And that made a lot of sense to me. And as I got older, of course, the conversations became more sophisticated. And when I was seven, my parents actually did something. We sort of had a ceremony and we called it like getting my own food choices. And so up until that point, of course, my parents were making all of my food choices for me. I would check with them. Oh, is this vegan? Oh, can I eat this? You know, all parents do that for their children. They put the food in front of them. And once I learned to read, my parents decided that they wanted me to take ownership of choosing what I ate. Now, to be really clear, they did not make it, it wasn't like, oh, you know, we're vegan, you get to choose if you want to stay vegan or not. That was not how it was framed. It was, up until this point, we as your parents have chosen what you eat, and now we think that you are old enough to read labels and understand these issues, and you can choose what to eat. When you're outside the home and, you know, with friends or at school or whatever, because our it was always clear that our home would always be vegan. So I didn't have a choice about what I could bring into the home or anything. It was really set up for if you're at a friend's house and they offer you food, you don't have to call us and be like, can I eat this? I got to make that decision for myself. And it wasn't even framed about being vegan or not. It was just food choices. And so part of the sort of ceremony we did was that I had a stack of note cards with all the different ingredients and things I might find on a label, eggs, casein, whey protein, milk. And then I had to be able to read that ingredient and then describe what it was, how it was made and why we didn't eat it as a family. And so it wasn't just, you know, you get your own food choices. It was, you know, we're going to educate you. We're going to explain why we've chosen the way we have. And now that you are equipped with this knowledge and ability to read labels for yourself, you too can make those educated choices. And with all of that information, there's no way I was going to knowingly choose to eat any animal products. The only thing it really changed was I took ownership of it. And so then when I'd be talking to friends or peers at school or in other venues, and they would say things like, oh, you know, you can't eat this, or why can't you eat this? I would say, oh, I can. I choose not to eat it. And that always kind of, you know, confused them because they, to them, it looked like my parents were making me do this, but I went around saying, oh no, I can do whatever I want. I'm choosing to be vegan and not to eat animals. Wow, that food ceremony idea is amazing and can't help but hear that and wonder why is this so different from what is actually taught in school? So do you remember what you learned in school and how it was different from what your parents were able to, you know, supplement your knowledge with? 
I actually homeschooled when I was little, so I wasn't learning about that stuff specifically. I did a mix. Like I, I went to a Montessori preschool. I did a little bit of a Waldorf school. I tried a lot of different things at different times. And some of the venues I was in, Waldorf school was fairly vegetarian oriented, but then they did a lot with wool and silk and local milk and dairy that like other kids would bring in from their, you know, family farm or whatever. And we would have conversations about that. Like they know the animals or you got to meet the animal. Like, does that make it okay to steal their milk and things like that? So we, we were always just talking about it, but I don't really remember. I managed to avoid like public school health class and that (laughs) type of stuff pretty well. You did end up going to public school later on? High school. Yes. So what came up food, nutrition, health-wise in high school that was kind of incongruent with what you were taught? Oh, everything. (laughs) I mean, by that (laughs) point, I was really aware and good at seeing what I viewed as propaganda. The cafeteria had got milk posters all over, and I never ate the school lunch. I always brought my own lunch, but I saw what my friends and other people were getting, and I had a pretty strong bias against it by that point when I saw, you know, what disgusting food they were serving and how it was clearly not health-promoting. Yeah, like I saw that there was a lot of industry propaganda that was all over the school in a lot of different ways. I saw it in college too, like I ran cross country and the number one thing we were told to do after we had a race or a heavy workout was to go drink chocolate milk because, you know, protein. Seriously, you're still telling people to drink chocolate milk? Like athletes, not only like milk alone is not healthy. And then chocolate milk with sugar and all like, this is still considered a health food in athletic circles. You know, that just kind of baffled me and I pushed back and I had quite a few struggles with my cross country coach and the climate on the team around the idea of what was considered healthy in so many ways. And I felt like my views were pretty different and incongruent with what they were teaching. So you mentioned industry propaganda with the Got Milk posters. Can you kind of explain both of those concepts? What is propaganda for anyone who doesn't know? And what does it mean that these industries are putting it up in schools? Propaganda basically is any sort of messaging that has a clear intention behind it that often isn't entirely truthful either and serves like an ulterior motive or purpose. And so in the case of Got Milk posters and the whole Got Milk campaign, the science today and evidence like really shows that dairy is not necessary for humans and it is certainly not a health and yet posters saying like got milk and videos showing people drinking milk and then bulking up really fast and being really strong. That's just pure propaganda to support an industry that has a vested interest in getting you to consume their products. The dairy industry even pays for and sponsors research and the design of studies that are not the full truth, but that try to make milk look good. And the example I give of how any industry can do this is smoking, for example. Like we all know today that smoking is not good for you and causes cancer. Yet there's also really good evidence that smoking actually can help you lose weight. So if you design a study where you look at a group of people who are smoking and a group of people who are not and measure BMI or weight loss, you could walk away and say, look, smoking helps you lose weight. 
weight loss is important for health. Like smoking's healthy. And the data actually showing that smoking helps weight loss is accurate. That's not made up. But the framing of any kind of science or study like that is so important because you're missing the whole other half of the picture of, okay, it might help you lose weight, but it might also give you cancer. People don't realize how much published science out there on dairy, on nutrition, on pharmaceutical, on so many different products is framed in a way that it can make a product or a thing look good while missing the downsides of the other half of the picture. And that is also propaganda, in my view, when you're not taking a holistic perspective at what the data and evidence really say. And the dairy industry is doing that so much. They pay for ads. We spend billions of dollars a year right now bailing out the dairy industry because fewer and fewer consumers are purchasing dairy products. And yet our tax dollars are bailing that industry out due to the dairy industry's lobbying power and influence. And so basically the U.S. government is using our tax dollars to buy excess dairy that's not being bought by consumers from the dairy industry. And then they need something to do with it. And one of the things they do with it is basically give cheap subsidized cheese and milk to schools and push that on children more. There's so many other ways they do that. They've also convinced the public school programs and the, the federal school lunch program that every child must be offered a glass of milk with their meal at school, whether they want it or not, basically. Like you, if you get a school lunch, you're required to pick one of the milks up in many cases. And things like that are serve no objective benefit or purpose other than supporting the profits of the dairy industry. So this brings us to your amazing podcast, the Science is Great podcast. So can you talk about why you started that and, and how you got involved in this investigative view on how media and news and scientific studies are kind of being, like you said, framed in certain ways to help certain causes and make them money? Absolutely. So my degree was in biochemistry. And before that, I grew up competing in science fairs. And I attended the International Science and Engineering Fair. And I competed in science fairs for about eight years, actually, and loved science, loved research, still do. But through that and through college, I began to notice a lot of instances of bias. And the first one I noticed was, so my research project, my senior year in high school, was about the chemical bisphenol A, BPA. If you've heard about that in plastic water bottles, you know, like a lot of them are labeled like BPA-free. I did this research project looking at BPA, and then a lot of the BPA-free goods I found out are using a replacement compound called bisphenol S, BPS. No one at the time knew about BPS, so companies were just labeling their products BPA-free and using this similar replacement compound that hadn't been studied. And so I basically decided to compare BPA and BPS for their cancer-causing potential. And basically, my research turned up that BPS is as bad, if not worse, than BPA for its ability to make breast cancer cells grow. And when I was presenting this research at a biotechnology competition, 
a lot of the scientists they pull from industry who work for biotech and pharmaceutical companies. And I had really good reviews from all the judges except for one. And when I was looking at their commentary afterwards, this judge basically said, I dislike your entire project because the premise of it is just wrong. And I'm like, what do you mean? The scientific method is here. My data is here. Like, tell me what's wrong with my data, you know? And he goes, well, you're starting with a premise of assuming BPA is bad. He goes, I work for the paper industry and we use BPA and BPS and everything. And there's nothing wrong with these chemicals. So I just disagree with your whole project. Okay, so my project didn't go on because I had a judge who couldn't point out anything specific. My whole project was referenced, cited, nothing. Just he disagreed with the premise of it because he works for the industry that uses these chemicals and believes they're safe. I saw things like that. And then I watched at the higher level of these science fairs that projects that were just basic research or asking questions or any project similar to mine that was looking at the safety of a compound or chemical or showed something to be dangerous almost never did well at the elite level. It was the innovations. It was the new drugs that were developed. It was the diagnostics. It was technology that had a marketable, sellable potential that was always held up and won over the basic research. And so I started seeing this bias at the like high school science fair level and then kind of just saw it more and more through college. As someone who also cares deeply about social justice, I began to see the history of science as well. And so many of the atrocities that have been committed in the name of science things like the Tuskegee experiments and eugenics and things that at the time scientists really believed were evidence-based. I brought together these two things I'm passionate about, which is real authentic scientific research from a holistic perspective and social justice and critical thinking and ethics. So my view at this point is science is a wonderful tool for collecting data and understanding our world. But science alone is not inherently ethical or moral or good or bad. It's however we humans use it and we have to apply our own ethical and moral framework to the science we're doing. Otherwise, science tells you what is. It doesn't tell you what should be or how we should proceed based on data. I've just become really frustrated with the way the term science and pro-science have been weaponized as though to be scientific, you have to believe this set of facts. And that is the antithesis of what science actually is, which is about questioning things and looking at the bigger picture. And so I started my podcast to have those deeper nuanced discussions free from censorship in a holistic way that go beyond just the snappy headline pro-science, anti-science phrases. Yeah, first of all, it is so inspiring to see someone who's so clearly just embodying your dharma in every which way and starting, you know, from such a young age. When you talk about that science project for high school, it sounds like science project that could have been done at a college level or even higher. So kudos to you. That's really amazing and impressive and inspiring. And on your podcast, you've had all types of guests, including Dr. T. Colin Campbell, who's notable for the China study and one of the most influential advocates of a whole food plant-based diet. 
So three of the most trending topics that have been coming up this year and last year include, as you mentioned, social injustice, COVID-19, as well as the bias in reporting, news media, and scientific studies. So let's go through each one of those and see what the top takeaways are from those interviews you did or just what you know about those topics. So first of all, you keep mentioning injustice. Can you talk about that a little bit and how social injustice and racism is found in the nutrition industries and kind of what you went through with Dr. Milton Mills recently? Yeah, so sexism, racism, there's so many different forms of oppression, speciesism that exist in our society right now. And they show up at all different levels, including in food and nutrition and medicine. So when it comes to racism and dairy, which is what uh, Dr. Milton Mills and I talked about, I think a lot of people misunderstand the term systemic racism sometimes. Systemic racism, as I understand it, is basically looking at the outcome of systems and policies and how they impact people. So it doesn't mean that the way something started or was founded was intentionally racist. It basically means that a policy or product or something has a disproportionately negative impact on people of color. I view dairy and the dairy industry as systemically racist because 75% of the world is actually lactose intolerant. So not only is dairy not a health food for a lot of people, it actively harms them and negatively impacts their health and functioning. And that's especially true when you break down populations based on ethnicity. And so Black people and Native people in the United States, Indigenous Africans, there's a whole bunch of populations that have way, way higher rates of lactose intolerance compared to people of white European descent. And so when you look at school lunch programs or federal nutrition guidelines that tell everyone to drink a glass of milk or two a day, if everyone follows that, white people aren't going to be as harmed by that as people of color will be. So the impact is that our policies and nutrition programs are disproportionately harming people of color and causing them more digestive issues, health issues, and there's, there's lots of research looking at the harms of lactose intolerance. So that's just one example of the intersection of systemic racism and nutrition. It's true with sexism, too, when you look at how few studies of drugs in the past took women into account, like clinical trials through much of the 1900s only enrolled men. And so our risk profile, our understanding of the negative side effects of a lot of drugs are only looking at how that plays out in a male body and not an anatomically female body. And those side effects are often different. And so it's led to sort of a gaslighting of women who come forward and say, I'm experiencing X, Y, or Z. And doctors saying, well, that's not on our list of side effects. That's not from this drug. So social justice and science are so deeply interwoven, especially historically, like I've studied eugenics a lot. And it was this idea at the time that poverty and mental disability and physical disabilities were all genetic. And so if we wanted to, you know, improve society or sort of improve the population so we wouldn't have poor people and disabled people, all we needed to do was basically stop the breeding of the people with the bad genes. And then we'd have perfect society. And we know now that that is so false and not the way poverty or disability work at all. And yet we forcibly legally sterilized 
many, many people in the United States, especially women, disabled people, people of color, under this guise. And that is so unjust. And I want to make sure we don't do those types of things again and use science and medicine or technology to cause more harm and oppression. Mm, powerful. Yeah, eugenics is wild. When you hear what it actually means and how it's used, the first thing that comes to mind is Hitler and Nazi Germany, which everybody now can probably say was wrong. It's easy to say that in hindsight, right? Like almost 100 years later now, but it's a lot harder to say that this is still happening at home. This is still the mindset behind a lot of the scientific studies and the systems that we have in place. Absolutely. A lot of people don't realize that Hitler developed his eugenics plan based on the United States eugenics policy. Like we love to look and say, oh, it was them, it was Germany. And it started in the United States. And then he took it over there. And the other thing that I think is really important to point out, especially right now, this is probably where we're going to go. But when we look at mandatory vaccination policies that are beginning to pop up, a lot of people cite a court case out of like, I think it was in 1905. You'll see it pop up. A lot of people are citing it right now. And it was the first court case in the United States that basically said it was legal for the state to compel forcible vaccination for the greater good. And what people don't realize is that that court decision then was the same one that was used to justify forcible sterilization of disabled people. I think we need to take a really good look at that and not just say, oh, this 1905 court case said we can mandate vaccines, so therefore it's legal and just to do today. You realize that that also, in a very liberal Supreme Court in the 1930s, when it was called Buck versus Bell, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was often revered as like one of the most progressive liberal Supreme Court justices of that time period, sided with the majority and wrote the majority ruling basically saying that he was going to allow for the forcible sterilization of a poor and disabled woman. Basically, he said that was fine because it was for the good of society. So we were using the same logic to justify mandatory vaccines that was then used to forcibly sterilize people, which we now see today and go, wow, that was wrong. So I think we need to be doing some really deep questioning of these historical court cases that we're still basing legal precedents. And people need to realize what else those legal precedents justified in the past. And are those things we really want to be using to justify? justify what we're doing today. Wow. Yeah. When you mentioned that court case and how it was used to forcefully sterilize that woman, it gave me chills. And it's a really good throwback to something that's actually happened in reality when right now we're hearing so many narratives saying that, you know, you're, you're being selfish or you're, you don't believe in science or all these insults that are going back and forth between people that are either for this COVID vaccine or against it. It is a personal decision as well as whatever your opinion is on the greater social wellness. So where do we go from here where everybody's kind of arguing with each other and judging each other? What can we do scientifically to resolve all of this discord? I mean, that's a really good, good question. <laughs> I don't have all the answers. And personally, I feel like what is going on is beyond science right now. 
science may not be the best tool to help us get out of this because I think there is a level of fear on all sides that is controlling people. And a lot of people are acting out of fear and emotion and not an objective, logical, evidence-based perspective. Again, I see it on all sides, but I think it makes real conversation incredibly difficult because you're working against such huge forces that have such a vested interest in a certain narrative right now that it's so powerful and so hard to go up against. And again, I think there's a lot of propaganda involved, and I think that's very difficult to deal with. When you have world-class, renowned scientists being suppressed, fired, and losing their jobs for expressing a different perspective or trying to publish studies that have data and evidence that goes against a narrative that other scientists want to put forth, that's not science. The field of science, even the idea that like the science is settled on any one issue I disagree with that narrative and that approach because that's not how science works. You can always find new data that can totally change your perspective, especially when we're talking about historical things or things we don't fully understand. You always need to have room for questioning, for discussion, for new evidence. And the minute any scientific narrative says the science is settled, this is fact, we're done talking about it, that's not science anymore. That's what's happening right now. Scientists and doctors are being suppressed, literally being fired. And even in my interview with Dr. T. Colin Campbell, he talked about how he's published hundreds of papers in all the years he's been researching nutrition. And this year, he tried to publish a paper that was talking about the importance of nutrition for preventing harms of severe COVID. And he said it was the first time in his life that a journal he submitted it to, who he's published papers with before, wouldn't even review his paper. So this isn't, we reviewed it, we don't want to publish it. The editors would not send it out to the review team because it wasn't popular enough, basically. That's not how science works. Science is not based on popularity. It's not based on whether it fits with some narrative or political motive or agenda. He was shocked. In all the years he's dealt with suppression and censorship and going up against industry, he's never had a credible scientific journal refuse to review his paper. So people need to realize that all of these other forces are going on right now that create a certain narrative in media, among friends, among peer groups, online, social media. People are only getting one perspective. And that makes real rational conversation or open dialogue about the science really difficult. So if I was to say like what I think people should be doing, stepping back from the labels and categorizations that people on all sides are putting each other in. And remember that we are all human and individuals, and most people do actually care about living a good life and being decent people. It's not everyone, but lots of people that are being labeled selfish or sheep or on all sides, there's lots of labels being thrown around. And I don't think we are going to get through this unless we can stop assuming people's views and making assumptions and labeling people based on a question they ask or one thing they share and remembering to actually see each other as individuals and interact on that level.
That's beautiful. Unity is the way forward, isn't it? It sounds like with what you're saying that there needs to be a distinction between doubt and fear because doubt is essentially the basis of science, right? You want to be asking questions. You want to be looking at old studies, bringing them back up, seeing is this still valid? Is this still relevant? What other context are we not considering here? What can we study more, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, versus well, the fear-based thinking. Absolutely. I mean, and fear is a really powerful emotion. And there's a lot of research showing that when you turn up the fear in individuals or a population, that they do become much easier to control and less rational. One of the very first things I saw from the beginning of the pandemic, I felt like the level of height and fear was disproportionate to what the data actually showed about how many people were actually harmed. I personally think COVID is a real pandemic and people are dying and being harmed by it. No question. But there's lots of other things. Heart disease is our number one killer in the United States. It is still killing more people even in the last year than COVID has killed. And it's something that we absolutely know how to prevent and aren't. So I think it's important to put things into perspective. And so in the beginning of the pandemic, when I saw all of this fear and these anecdotal stories about people being harmed and dying, which again, I believe is happening, it reminded me of what I saw and how I view sort of 9-11. 9-11 was terrible. And our government, in my view, used it to stir up fear of terrorists and others in the Middle East. And so terrorism was our big threat and thing that everyone was scared of for the next few years. It justified going to war. We then used it, or it was exploited in my view, to justify all kinds of other things that, yeah, terrorism is real. 9-11 killed a bunch of people. That's awful. Does that justify being scared of everyone from the Middle East? Absolutely not. And that's kind of how I see what's happening with COVID. I think that governments always exploit crises and use fear to stir up energy for their agendas. And a crisis can be real and it can still be exploited to push policies and other things that might not actually be in our best interest as a society. Mm, Absolutely. So who's benefiting from all that? Who's benefiting from the fear, from the policy pushing and from everything else that's going on right now? Right now, Big Pharma is one of the biggest benefiters. There are 10 newly minted billionaires due solely to profits from the COVID vaccine. The upward transfer of wealth, even beyond just big pharma, shutdowns and all the policies and lockdowns around the pandemic, it has been the biggest upward transfer of wealth pretty much ever. So while, you know, your local mom and pop shops and family run businesses have been hurt and closing down, Amazon and Microsoft and all of these big corporations have profited immensely. It's just when you look at the numbers of what has actually happened over the last year and how much money the top billionaires and most powerful individuals in the world have already made while other people can't afford to feed themselves is just stunning. 
billionaires, large corporations are profiting immensely, and especially big pharma, when we see the efforts that these pharmaceutical companies have gone to, to suppress any kind of cheap off-patent drugs that might be able to treat COVID in favor of newly created, patented, hugely expensive treatments. Again, you see how the way this pandemic is being handled is just putting money in the pockets of the powerful and wealthy, and especially especially the pharmaceutical companies. Absolutely. And that's not conspiracy. That's just, you can Google it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> look, look up the upward transfer of wealth and new billionaires 2021 and it'll pop right up. Absolutely. Yeah. So speaking of Googling, there's certain things that you can look up, especially when we're talking about COVID. It just doesn't seem to align with what we're seeing in reality. And my question would be, where do we go to find unbiased information? Where do we go to find the scientific studies without this narrative? And you know that Google has this thing where it pops up the ads first. So your first like three results are things that were paid for. And then under it is going to be the things that are most popular. So that's also things that were paid for in some other way. So most of us are getting Google search results. We're getting whatever's popping up on our phones, on our TVs, and maybe word of mouth if you're lucky, because that might actually be a little less biased. But (laughs) where should we be looking for unbiased information? it's really hard. And the things that I would consider unbiased, I know plenty of other people who would disagree. And I've had people that simply because of the website I'm sharing something from refuse to look at it. YouTube has become a big censored platform. They remove anything that pretty much goes against Big Pharma's narrative. If you look at the details of it. So there are alternative platforms that have popped up such as BitChute, which is literally a video sharing platform that claims not to censor stuff. And yet BitChute has this connotation of being an alt-right conspiracy theory website, which I'm sure there's plenty of that stuff on there too. But when scientific information and doctors who are saying something about the dangers or side effects of the COVID vaccine are being removed from YouTube, they have nowhere else to go except these other platforms that support free speech. Just because the platform also has some other information I might disagree with on there doesn't mean that everything on that platform is automatically bad. And yet that's kind of the response that I've gotten from people. So I've had people who will not even look at a video simply because the URL is BitChute. That would be like, oh, it's a video on YouTube. I'm not going to look at anything from YouTube. There's so much different information on YouTube. That's ridiculous to say, oh, it's a YouTube video, so I'm not going to look at it. And yet that's kind of what's going on. So I don't know that I've found some truly objective source that everyone thinks is credible. It just seems too polarized for that right now. Personally, I find the Physicians for Informed Consent to have some of the most objective, unagenda driven and their name is exactly what it sounds like. They are pro-informed consent and presenting all sides of the data. I think they're a really good unbiased resource, but there are plenty of people that do not believe they are unbiased. So it's, you know, it's, it's difficult. And I like to go to the original source. So if I see an article that's really interesting and it cites some study, I will go to PubMed, the government database for, you know, scientific studies, and I will try and find the actual study so that I can share a published peer-reviewed study with people that's not on some website or a platform or anything that they can dismiss. 
But that doesn't always work for everyone because not everyone has the tools or ability or time to dig into the data of a published peer-reviewed study on their own. And then people can also disagree. This is what I think is so important about science. You can have a set of data and a published study, and you can have five different scientists who all are going to interpret that data in different ways. And that's valid. This whole idea that there is only one valid interpretation is just false. And I'm really tired of seeing that because doctors don't always agree on the best course of treatment for various things. Doctors, scientists, that doesn't exist. And now there's sort of this expectation that there's only one right way to think or see this data. So, I mean, I just encourage people, do your own research. It can be really hard Googling things can be pretty skewed. It's harder than ever to get information that does not fit with a specific narrative. But there are some people on Instagram that keep getting deleted, but bring their accounts back who share information. You got to look and follow people and think critically for yourself. When you see an article or a piece of information or content I'd encourage you to ask the question of what is the agenda behind this? Who benefits from this perspective? Who's funding this? And what does it mean if I believe this perspective or not on everything? That's kind of the way I go into things whenever I see anything that does appear to have an agenda. Who benefits from this agenda? I think that's a really important question to ask. Absolutely. And I love that you brought up the peer-reviewed studies and journals. I remember being in college, that's what we were taught to do is go into a database and find specifically peer-reviewed studies, which essentially you're saying if it's peer-reviewed, then it's valid. And if it's not, then it's not the best source to be using. But what you described, it's still in the context, this is one study. There might be a a meta-analysis of multiple studies, but then that's pulling information from whatever the researchers are choosing to pull information from. So all of it is subject to human bias and interpretation. So it's interesting that they essentially teach you, here's the right scientific way to do a research paper, but it's still got the bias behind it. Well, one really good example of that right now is relative risk reduction and absolute risk reduction. And this is a discussion I've seen happening around the COVID vaccine efficacy. Vaccine efficacy and effectiveness actually mean two different things. One is a measure called a relative risk reduction measure. So if you have a group that's vaccinated and a group that's not, you compare the rates of COVID in those two groups, and that's how you get these relative risk reduction numbers. So the 95% effective number that early on was being thrown out for some of the vaccines, I think a lot of people look at that and they think, if I take this vaccine, that means if I get COVID, I have a 95% chance of not getting it if I'm exposed. It means that your risk is 95% lower than someone who didn't get the vaccine. But what was that person's original risk even without the vaccine? Relative percentages are meaningless without knowing what we're talking about. So if I tell you, I'll give you 50% of my savings, is that meaningful? If I tell you I'll give you 95% of my savings, what's the first thing you're going to want to know? 95% of what? Are you talking about $50 in savings or $2 million? So the 95% is a relative comparison. There was a study that came out recently looking at the effectiveness of the Pfizer vaccine that basically showed a person's absolute risk without the vaccine of getting COVID might be 3 to 4%. Don't quote me on the exact numbers. 
if you got the vaccine, it would be down like below 1%. If your risk goes from 4% to 2%, that's a halving of your risk from being vaccinated or not. And so those numbers can sound great, but then you're like, oh, my risk was only 4%. Now it's 2%. Huh, that sounds different than 95%. The data is all there. These numbers are there. One scientist can present the data with the absolute risk reduction, and another scientist can present the data with the calculated relative risk reduction. And how that data is presented or even discussed in the media makes a dramatic difference in how people think about it or understand it or view it. But that's a published peer-reviewed study. And so people don't realize just how much we humans can manipulate and are manipulating data depending on what we want it to say. Most people are presenting the relative risk reduction, like the 95% number for how effective the vaccines are. They're discussing the risk, the side effects from the COVID vaccine in absolute. So they're not even being consistent. Well, if you compare the two groups, you'll go, wow, if I get the vaccine, my risk is actually double for getting pericarditis or myocarditis compared to not getting it. But they don't give you that double. They give you the relative for the benefit and then the absolute for the harm. So it's like not even a consistent presentation of the data. It isn't just with COVID and the vaccine. This is with so many other things. Like I said, smoking, it's a tactic that pretty much every big industry on the planet has used to try and present science and data in a way that is favorable to their industry. So big oil has done this when it comes to climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. Animal ag has done this with climate change, with nutrition. The dairy industry has done this. All of the big industries are doing it and have done it. And they all kind of got it starting with tobacco. It's called the tobacco industry playbook. And so many industries are doing this. And that's why it's so important that we all learn to think critically and look into these issues for ourselves. Absolutely. And one of those critical thoughts that I've had hearing you speak about relative versus absolute risk is also... Where's the risk calculation coming from? Is it from people that are in clinical trials? And if so, seeing things reported such as something like 70% of people that are being hospitalized for COVID are overweight or obese. So what's the percentage of the people in the studies that are being calculated as part of that risk are not overweight if you're not overweight? How does it apply to me? And not to mention, you know, I'm vegan and mostly whole food plant-based that population in the U.S. is small. It's like 5%. So when are there going to be studies that cover people that aren't overweight or obese, are vegan, are exercising, they don't smoke, they don't drink, all these little things about yourself and how it applies to you, because you're looking at an average of the whole population. But what if you're not like the average people in the population? Does it still apply to you the same way? Absolutely. I mean, you're absolutely correct that that's a great question. And It's not always clear. In the original study of some of the vaccines, I think they excluded people with autoimmune diseases, for example. There's all kinds of ways to analyze and question, am I represented in this? What is my risk of a severe harm from COVID if my vitamin D levels are high and I'm eating a healthy whole foods plant-based diet and exercising? Are there any studies that take that into account? I mean, there's so many different factors. And the reality is, even when it comes to published peer-reviewed science, 
a lot of scientists pre-COVID have spoken out that it might be as much as half or two-thirds of all published studies are probably false and not even meaningful anyway, because there are so many factors like this, confounding factors that we cannot account for because we are only humans studying a certain set of parameters. And there are so many other things that influence outcomes in a study that we can't always take into account. A lot of studies that are published are probably not replicatable and incorrect conclusions. Science is a great tool, but we have to look at it with some humility and recognize that it is just a tool and it is not perfect and it is not the truth and it changes. Absolutely. It's not the tool. It's how it's used, right? Absolutely. Wow. So this has been amazing. If listeners could do one thing right now to help the world, what would you recommend that they do? Right now, stand up and support bodily sovereignty. I think that is under threat right now. And I'm not here to tell anyone what they should or shouldn't do with any medical intervention or drug, but I think it's really important that we all be allowed to make those decisions for ourselves. And that right is quickly being taken away in a coercive manner that does not support true informed consent where people are allowed to make decisions about what medical intervention is best for themselves. Take it from someone who's dedicated her life to removing and addressing the bias in science and how it is affecting our lives personally, that we do need to stick up for something and the time is now. So where can people find you if they want to stay in touch? can sign up on my website for my email list. I don't send out a ton of emails. It's just there for, you know, if and when social media is no longer working, but I'm on Instagram and YouTube under Born Vegan. And I have a podcast that you can find on iTunes and Spotify, which is Science is Gray. So find the Born Vegan on YouTube and Instagram and bornvegan.org and listen to Science is Gray. And thank you so much, Serena, for being on the Vegan Dharma pod. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Vegan Dharma podcast. Keep in touch. Add me on Facebook and Instagram, Vegan Dharma Coach. If you're interested in one-on-one coaching to find your soul's purpose, send me a DM. Remember, you are more than this physical body, and we are meant to embody our soul's purpose. The world needs you just as you are. I will see you on the next episode of the Vegan Dharma Podcast.